All right, great. Thanks, Peter and Ben. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, thanks again for coming today. If it's your first Sunday, welcome to our, to our church. Glad you guys are here. Uh, we have, uh, are going to start a new series today, so kind of a, a big day for us. I think a lot of you knew this was coming, but in case you didn't, we're going to start a new series uh, in the books of First and Second Samuel today, which will take us through the school year. Uh, with a couple short breaks probably for Christmas and Easter kind of pending. So not quite sure when we'll end. It'll probably be Memorial Day weekend, but, um, but we shall see, uh, but about that long. So uh, today's sermon will feel a little bit different uh, as whenever we start a longer series like this especially, pretty much any series uh, will do something like this, but a longer series especially, we like to spend an entire sermon uh, introducing the book and preparing us to learn from it. And preparation isn't just informative. Like, there'll be some information today. Uh, I know some of you love this stuff, some of you don't, uh, but I'm trying to find a happy middle, hopefully, uh, between some of this stuff. But there'll be some information about the book and about uh, date and authorship and kind of what, this, what we're about to embark on. Uh, but it will also be a sermon. We'll get to that in just a little bit. Uh, but it's, uh, preparation, though, is not just informative. It's something of the heart. I think. And so um, I was thinking of uh, at one point in Jesus' ministry, he uses a word picture uh, of how when you pour new wine into old wineskins, the, the old wineskins burst and you lose the wineskin because it, it breaks and then all the wine gets poured out on the ground um, because the wineskins aren't seasoned for the new wine. And his point is, I'm thinking of Mark 2, but I think he says this in Matthew as well. Uh, the point is, we need to embrace the change or the new wine of Christ to prepare our hearts like new wineskins to receive uh, from him and, and from the truth that he brings into history. Kind of uh, in fulfillment of, but also differing from uh, the Old Testament that came before him. Now, I think in a similar sense, uh, you could use that idea to apply to how we read a book like First and Second Samuel. Are our hearts prepared like new wineskins? Are we asking the right questions about a book like this? What are we expecting to find? Uh, who are we expecting to find when we read books like this as well? You could apply this to, of course, any book of the Bible, but a book like First and Second Samuel, I think, um, it really caters to that. So in C.S. Lewis's book, um, The Magician's Nephew, in the Chronicles of Narnia series, uh, he says, uh, for what you see and hear depends a good deal on where you're standing. It also depends on what sort of person you are, all right? So our vantage point, where we're standing when we interpret the Bible, uh, should be firmly and squarely on the promises of the New Testament. And so reading those promises back into an Old Testament book, like First and Second Samuel, is essential to proper understanding. Otherwise, we'll, just, we'll end up seeing the wrong things. It's like we're we're standing in the wrong spot. We might get something kind of religious or spiritual or think we are, or moral maybe, a principle of sorts uh, from a book like this. But if we're standing in the wrong spot, in the spot that the Bible's not telling us to, um, we'll remain confused and we'll, we'll get, we won't get the truth uh, from, from the book. More, more on that later. Uh, but this at least will maybe whet your appetite for where we're headed today, but throughout this series. All right. So why First and Second Samuel? Uh, I think the big answer to this is because it's a big part of the Old Testament. And so that means it's a big part of your Bibles. Uh, the books are weird. They're fun. They, they contain some of the more well-known but usually misinterpreted stories of the entire Bible, like the story of David and Goliath, uh, and also David and Jonathan's friendship and many other things like that. And 
Uh, it's a part of the ancestry of Christ, warts and all. Uh, Jesus himself references these books in relation to his ministry, and I think that's actually the highest mark of importance you can give a book. When Jesus cites it as God's word, not as something like Aesop's fables, but in reference to something about his own story. So uh, it's at certain points of Jesus' ministry, he says, remember what happened to David? Well, that's happening to me now as well. And he does theology with that. And so he, he connects dots between these old stories and his story. Uh, very rarely, if ever, does he say, remember what happened to David? Now that's a lesson for you to live your life in some capacity now. He doesn't do that. He draws and connects dots between David's story and other people's stories as well. I'm just picking David because he's a big figure uh, from these books and connects those with, with himself. All right, so um, I want to spend a minute here on this question too. How do you determine what to preach at Hiawatha? Just because um, we get this question uh, quite a bit actually uh, for many of you. So um, there's a longer answer to this. If you want some time, uh, find me after church. I can buy a cup of coffee sometime. We can talk about it. But the short answer is uh, you could say that our now... 17-year goal in the making is that we preach through as much of the Bible as possible. And by that I mean the short books, the long books, the New Testament, the Old Testament, narrative, poetry, prophecy, epistle, the difficult stories, the messy stories, the offensive stories, the straightforward stories, the beautiful, the horrific, all of it. And we've never preached this book. There are these books before. Uh, In fact, uh, besides a short series in the book of Ruth a few years ago during COVID, um, you have to go back to 2018 since we preached a longer Old Testament narrative book when we we preached through the book of Judges. Uh, And a lot of you weren't even here for that. So uh, that's one answer to this question. Over the long run, we want to expose you all to as much genre of the Bible or genre of Scripture as we can. And through that, show you how to read it in a biblical way and how it all serves to tell the one story of Christ crucified and raised for sinners. All right, Uh, next uh, kind of component here to introducing these books would be uh, kind of the who's and the what's and the when's. So who, what, and when is Samuel. Um, So Samuel, uh, we'll meet him actually in a couple of weeks. Uh, We're going to start next week by looking at Hannah, his mom, and her story. But Samuel's one of the first and most prominent characters in these two books, kind of hence the name. Uh, But Samuel was a prophet, a priest, and a judge-like figure who lived around 1000 BC. And and by judge, I mean one who served in the line of the biblical judges. They were deliverer figures, they conquered, they led, they governed after Israel uh, entered the promised land, after their exodus out of Egypt and entered the promised land and uh, God raised up these people to serve in that capacity. He was kind of like the last judge, uh, in a way. So he filled a lot of roles, which is actually pretty unique uh, to sort of in in relation to other A-level characters in the Bible, uh, really apart from one, the other one being Christ uh, himself, Jesus Christ himself, uh, but Samuel's kind of unique in that regard. His main role in much of 1 Samuel is to essentially oversee Israel's transition into the era of kings. All right, so again, just kind of just to get your sort of chronological bearings, Israel has entered the promised land and they didn't have kings yet. These judges rose up to kind of serve that de facto role. Um, but now Samuel is going to kind of oversee this transition into the era of the kings. In fact, the next book after this is First and Second Kings and then First and Chronicles and then the prophets. And so we're kind of almost at the end of Israel's Old Testament history, actually, in, in one regard. 
Uh, Samuel actually kind of reminds me of the narrator in Arrested Development. Have you guys seen this show? Uh, if you haven't, just check out for a second, I guess. But um, he's uh, not a one-to-one, obviously. But it's, it's a bit of, he has, Samuel kind of has a bit of snark to him. He, he has a bit of face-palming to him a lot of times. He has a bit of reason and wisdom. But uh, a lot of Samuel's role is sort of watching and kind of narrating uh, from the sidelines as this family nation of Israel continually falls on its face while God shows grace after grace after grace to them. That's actually one way to summarize the book. There's probably a lot of helpful ways, but that's one kind of uh, historically summative, uh, in any case, uh, way to understand this book is Samuel is like the narrator in Arrested Development. Um, tradition says that Samuel wrote the book, again, which is why it's named after him, though he likely had another author uh, to help him as well, since the book contains the story of Samuel's death. That would be, pretty, that would be something if you could write your own uh, death. But uh, he still likely, though, had a hand in writing much of it and supplying the source material uh, for other parts of the book as well, even after his death, that other authors and scribes used to finish it under the direction of the Holy Spirit. So if you're wondering, I think Peter actually, uh, I don't know if he's here right now, but Peter brought up last week, why is it not called First and Second David? Um, that's actually the answer, I think, uh, is because Samuel wrote it, and he's the first main A-level character that comes up in, uh, in the book. And so um, in case you're wondering that too, it's a great question actually. All right, so this next section now, uh, we'll spend a little bit more time on, it's more important. Uh, and it's the question, uh, the issue of how to sit under preaching on First and Second Samuel and how to interpret it. Uh, so this could be like, this could be for you reading it too. This is not just here like sitting under preaching, but that's a big part of it. It's also how to read it and how to understand these books of the Bible. Uh, they are, uh, in a word, very complicated actually. Uh, and that, the only reason we actually read them, uh, you know, Christian or not, is because we want them to mean something to us, right? We read them because we think they're going to somehow convey something to us. They're, they're, they're religious texts. They're spiritual texts. And so we read them, and we try to understand them and try to apply them somehow uh, to our setting and to our life. We try to read them in, in relation to the rest of the stories in the Bible. And that's not always really easy to do. Uh, it's often done really poorly actually. Uh, and often it's done well. It's just like, so it can, but the point is it can be done bad or, or good. Uh, and so I have four things today. There, there could probably be 12, honestly, but four big things here, um, points to this. Like, how do we sit under preaching? Uh, and this goes back to the C.S. Lewis quote. What expectations should we have? What's our vantage point? What you see depends on a lot where you're standing. So how do we stand in the right spot so we see the right things and not the wrong things? All right? Some of these I've kind of alluded to already, but um, we'll, we'll uh, go into, into greater depth here. The first is to keep the greater story in mind. Uh, Jesus said on the day he rose from the dead in Luke 24, he opened up the Old Testament with a couple of disciples and said, here I am in all the stories, in every section, in every genre, in every character, in every song. Here's where I was whispered and anticipated. And yes, without question, Jesus spent time in First and Second Samuel illuminating it with himself. Uh, and so First and Second Samuel is actually uh, not the most important part of the Bible. That's something maybe you didn't expect me to say uh, today, but it's not. The Bible is a story of lessers that give way to greaters, 
like the moon only shines when the sun points its rays at it, right? So this book then comes to life and becomes important when we read it as a part of a greater story, when, when you read it with the rest of the Bible in hand, and especially the light of the Son of Christ shining on it. And so another way to say that would be like the moon doesn't source any light, right? It just reflects the sun's light. There's no source of light from this book that's not Christ's light itself reflecting off of it. So that's going to be our task. That's going to be as, as, our, as your pastors, as preachers, but your task as well as listeners is to have that in mind. We're certainly not going to be exhaustive uh, when we do that. And so look for this, uh, even where in areas where we're not mentioning it. Look for it with your community group. Look for it yourself uh, when you're reading this uh, midweek and, and so forth. All right, the second is uh, look for Jesus' sufferings everywhere. So if point one was like the macro, this would be the micro version. And that is, um, like Paul in the New Testament read the story of when Moses struck the rock and it poured forth water for Israel in the desert, that Old Testament story. And like Paul said, the rock was Christ, so is Jesus in the minutia of these stories as, as well, even in inanimate objects. He's in the things that are struck. He's in the things that are harmed, and then through their harming, pouring forth blessing. That's kind of Paul's theology. The rock was actually Christ in an allegorical, figurative, but still very real sense. When it was struck, it prefigured when Jesus would be struck and pour forth the water of life for us. And so again, it's not just about Christ. It's about his sufferings. The cross is all over this book. And so listen for those connections as you sit under our sermons uh, in, in these books. I should also say here as well, as an aside, uh, we're not going to preach or read every word of these books. Um, but with these two things in mind, these first two things, you don't have to read or understand every word to properly get meaning. Because meaning comes from Jesus, not from the text itself. As strange as that might be to hear, uh, meaning comes more from Jesus than from the actual text. I think of um, John 5, where Jesus says to the Jews, in kind of a mild rebuke, he says, you read the Bible as though it itself has life in it. Like the words themselves have life. The words themselves have some principle for you to live by so you might give yourself life. But you miss the fact that they're all about me. You see, so we can read the Bible even with good intentions and read it as though even it's God's word. But if we're standing in the wrong spot and not seeing Christ in them and his sufferings, we completely miss the boat. And so Jesus himself with this rebuke, we need to remember this. Like this is a helpful kind of corrective interpretational hermeneutical shift even for Christians who know this but maybe forget or who are learning like we all are uh, to remember that the text itself doesn't provide the meaning. The words themselves don't provide the meaning. Jesus provides the meaning. Um, so as we go then, we're going to still give you a very, very healthy dose of this but we also didn't want to be in this series like three years from now. Uh, at the same time. It's 55 chapters. Uh, it would far and away be the longest series we ever did if we literally preached every word and dissected it. Um, be kind of cool. It wouldn't be wrong to do, uh, but we don't, you don't have to do that uh, to get proper, Christ-centered, uh, gospel-centered, faith-inducing, hopefully, uh, meaning from, from these uh, texts. All right, third is 
Uh, Note the contrast between law and grace. In Galatians 4 in the New Testament, again, same guy Paul, interpreting the Old Testament, uh, he says about a story in Genesis, Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. These things can be understood allegorically. The women represent two testaments or covenants, one of the law and one of grace or freedom. All right, so in the same way, uh, we're going to see this same theme play out in First and Second Samuel. In First and Second Samuel, there are stories of two kings, two wives, two ways of treating your enemies, two ways of relating to God, and so on. And all of which help to kind of reverberate the story of the clash between human effort and God's effort, or as we say here often, because the Bible does, law and grace, or Old Testament and New Testament. And how Jesus comes in line with the latter, not the former. So genealogies and family stories and things like that are a big deal in the Bible because Jesus comes from one family line, not from the ones that compete with that family line. There are different kinds of lines or lineages. And the Bible makes a huge deal to say he comes from the line of God doing everything and you doing nothing. That's actually what Paul's argument is in Galatians 4. Genealogically, he comes from the line of God providing something out of nothing, not in cooperation with us, but apart from our works. And so in that vein, it shapes what the gospel is and also what it isn't. All right, so I have that in mind too. We'll actually look at that, start to look at that a little bit um, today, a little bit later, but also next week. Then last, uh, number four, see yourselves in the faux pas, fails, <clears throat> or sorry, falls and failures. So uh, when Nathan the prophet tells that story to David in 2 Samuel 12, we'll look at this um, next spring, and then he says, uh, you are the man to him, uh, which I know some of you don't know the story, just hang tight, we'll get there. Um, but when he says, you are the man, uh, that meant you are the bad guy in this story. Uh, that actually becomes a helpful interpretational paradigm as well. Uh, that being not seeing yourself in the heroes as much as the villains. All right? So I think I said a couple of weeks ago, be very careful who you identify with in a biblical story. Let's be careful. Uh, there's right ways to do that and wrong ways to do that. We can too quickly rid ourselves into the hero and try to uh, be like that person, and then we conclude that the Bible's telling me to be like someone who's better than me. And that's all we get. Uh, but that's rarely the case. Uh, what's much more commonly the case is to look at stories, like Nathan is sharing a story, a bit, uh, which is literally a biblical story, because it comes about, becomes the Bible, with David and saying, in this story, you're the villain. And it's this huge moment for David that shapes him, actually, in a very positive way. It uh, doesn't inflate him, but humbles him and leads him to belief and repentance, uh, out of which he writes Psalm 51, out of which he, you could argue, becomes an even better king. So, in this book, there will be a lot of outright messes. And that's a massive understatement. In this book, some of you have read it, uh, there'll be points where you will probably audibly cringe. Can you audibly cringe? I don't know what audible cringe would be. You'll probably audibly cringe. Uh, it's horrible that there's atrocities in this book. Uh, there are things that uh, we, well, you might, you might think, I can't believe that's in the Bible, that, that, this story. Uh, there are things that are um, taboo, uh, even in our culture today, that, that, we're like, that, that are 
in these stories that people are doing and they're condoning uh, and they're not repenting of and they're just like letting them, you know, sort of uh, be there in their hearts and in, in their, their culture, all right? Now, the point to that is not to see the Bible as prescribing or condoning those ways of living or those things, but as describing a fallen world of which we all play a big part, yet into which God delves to come to rescue us in spite of ourselves, not because of ourselves. And when we understand that, these stories come to life. They come to life. Uh, they're humbling, but the, in a lot of ways, the happiest thing uh, ever. Uh, it, it, but again, if we start to compare ourselves and say this horrible thing is, is here with these characters in the Bible, and we say, well, at least I haven't done that, we, we'll, we'll miss it. You know, it'll, um, and we, all, we think that often, right? I remember um, years ago when uh, Tiger Woods, this is dating me a little bit, but uh, when Tiger Woods, the whole thing with his affair came out, you guys remember this? It's like 10 years ago now or something. It's been a long, I'm looking at Caleb because he's a golfer. I, maybe you don't know. Uh, it's, been about, it's been a long time. And I remember uh, it was this huge deal. You guys remember this? He had a lot of issues, uh, you know, a lot of drug issues and alcoholic issues, alcohol issues. But he uh, lost his marriage. Uh, he had um, tons of affairs. And this, all things blew up. I remember the first time I heard that, this little voice in my, in my mind came up. And the voice was, at least I haven't done that. And I thought, like, I kind of quickly caught myself and thought, where is that coming from? Is that a biblical thought? Is that a true thought? Is that a helpful thought? Am I the hero in my own stupid narrative of my own life that just amplifies me and, and makes me just better than everyone else? Like, this is how we must not think. This is, this is how the Bible says, I have a better story, actually. It's a horrible story. But we've all done something to paint this world into what it is. And we're the main characters in the worst story of all time. And yet God delves into this and bears it. He kind of becomes it. He, you know, reaches out and touches us in our leprous state, like in Mark 1. And he, and he brings us close and dies for our sins. You've got to have both sides of that. And again, if, first, if, this, if the Samuels are just this stories of, of us that we can just feel better about ourselves, um, that's not a Christian way to read the book. A Christian way to read the book is to read Jesus into every passage, as though he's the hero, and ourselves into, into the villainous stories. All right? Much more to say about that. Uh, you know, again, there could be 12 things there. I, we wanted to start with this and record this so we could point people back to this uh, throughout the series because many people won't be here today. This is really important stuff, actually. Uh, and so, um, but we will be helping you along the way. If it's brand new and this is choo, way over your head, uh, hang in there. Uh, it's actually not that complicated when you understand the gospel and you understand that as the lens. Like, I'm not saying to you, your job is to go and figure out how to understand Hebrew and the original language this was written in uh, and to understand the ancient Israeli customs in context. We'll do some of that stuff to sprinkle sprinkles on the cupcake, you know, but the main cupcake is knowing Christ crucified. If you have that, you can understand mysteries, you guys. Mysteries. 
the, the most confusing parts of the Bible can come to life and it can have aha moments and can mean something that will actually make you worship. Not look to yourself, but look outside of you and, and actually worship God and hopefully feel closer to Jesus along the way. All right. This last uh, section then, before we wrap up for today, is to preach the end of Ruth. All right, so I'm, this isn't a trick. Like, you're like, what? Uh, we're we're going to get to 1 2 Samuel next week. Um, the reason I'm doing this, though, is um, we want to, so I want to preach Ruth 4, 13 to 17. If you have a Bible, want to turn there, go for it. I'll have it on screen in a second. One last bit of introduction, though, um, I, think, uh, I think will cater well uh, to, uh, to our study. And that is to look at how the book of Ruth wraps up and leads right into 1 Samuel. And so it comes right before the the book. It's the same genre. It contains a lot of similar themes. It'll ease us into 1 Samuel too because 1 Samuel starts very abruptly and it's a little bit longer. And so um, part of this is for time's sake as well. But the big thing here is to help us see that these stories uh, that Jesus kind of eventually comes out of that shape who we understand Jesus as Savior and God's Son to be actually begin before 1 Samuel too. There's, there's a lineage, there's a history to this, a, a, theology, a theological uh, track uh, to this that actually goes back to the very beginning of the Bible as well, including Ruth. Um, and so all this stuff here, these one, this one to four I, I just went through, I'm going to try to walk through a couple of those at least, maybe, maybe all of them to a degree, uh, at least the first three. Um, for t- in, in today's purposes, actually all of them. Um, and then, uh, again, it'll give us a chance to actually hear good news rather than just all these concepts, as important as they are. Okay, let's read Ruth 4, 13 to 17. I'll say a couple of things about this afterwards. I know we're jumping right into the end of a story that you may or may not know about, but let me just read this to start, and I'll explain a couple of things about what's going on here after. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. All right, so uh, this is essentially then a closing to one of the big love stories of the Old Testament uh, between Ruth and Boaz, but with a few twists. One of which is Naomi, who is Ruth's mother-in-law, who had lost her husband and both her sons earlier in the story, one of which is married to Ruth, now has been given a redeemer son by way of Ruth and Boaz. This this was called a a kinsman redeemer or guardian redeemer principle or law in the Old Testament that was meant to further the name of the deceased childless man uh, while also protecting the widow, or in this case, the widowed grandmother as well. So the idea being here that Obed would grow up and take care of his grandmother in the place of a husband. 
okay? So again, if that's kind of like, whoa, what the heck just happened? Uh, hang tight, because uh, we'll, we don't have to understand all of that to get what I'm gonna say next, uh, but it does help to get uh, some bearings here. So now a few theological signposts uh, to note here. I'll call them signposts. They're like places just to stick our you know, flag in the ground and say this is important. Uh, Jesus comes out of this theme. Jesus comes from this uh, lineage uh, here, and we can draw theology from it, all right? First is this. Uh, God enables conception. So it says, God enabled Ruth to conceive. Uh, We'll see how this is the case for Hannah next week as well, Samuel's mom. Uh, But So this may not sound like a huge signpost or twist, but Against the backdrop of so much barrenness in the Old Testament, this is a really big deal. It's not, it's not an accidental, you know, uh, detail here. Um, that Ruth is the story of a young couple who are able to have a baby because of God's gracious and generous help, not because they worked hard for that themselves. And so this is why um, uber-fertility can actually kind of become a problem. Uh, in the Bible, and maybe sometimes in our lives. Uber-fertility can wrongly insinuate that we are something when we're nothing, or that we did something uh, to, uh, to produce this child. Uh, even like things like, oh, we, we must be on a better diet. That's why, you know, we're able to have kids. We're more fertile because of th- this diet or this way of trying to conceive a child. And people can kind of like, you know, almost subtly brag about that sometimes. I don't know if that's that's a big deal today anymore or not. Uh, but it kind of can be. Uh, in the Bible, uh, fertility is actually uh, downplayed in, in the face of barrenness because of God's grace and how it amplifies his work uh, that's apart from us. This is actually why it says here, praise be to God and not, well done, Ruth and Boaz. You guys did so great in trying to make that baby. How did you do that? Like, we didn't say that today, right? We, did, we are usually still standing in awe of pregnancy because how does it even happen? It's like one of the greatest miracles like, uh, uh, that we experience in this life, pregnancy. You know, it's like, how does it actually happen? Like, my wife and I had three kids, and, and every time we were like, what? You know, like, this is insane uh, that, this, that this actually uh, can happen. Even if we can understand it physiologically, there's just that, but how, right? And so, um, anyway. So more on that next week. But this is, this is a, a signpost and a stepping stone into uh, this theme that will, that will fill the first part of uh, 1 Samuel. Second, a daughter-in-law is better than seven sons. Okay? Does that sound strange to anyone else? A daughter-in-law is better to you than seven sons. Uh, nothing against daughters-in-law or in-laws in general but for them to be better than seven of your own kids? Uh, the ESV says uh, more to you. NIV says better to you. Uh, so uh, that this daughter-in-law, Naomi, is more to you than seven sons. This is not how we normally talk or think, right? Uh, no matter how great your relationship with your in-laws might be, uh, I, you know, some of yours might be very, very strained. It's actually kind of common that strained in-law relationships on some level, which again, makes this even an even bigger deal. Like, where is this coming from? This is not how we normally talk about family relationships. Um, something's up. And, and when something's up in biblical narrative, that's usually where you find the gospel. And here's where I think it is. The women are saying 
something apart from your bloodline, from outside of you, from outside of your family and even your nation. Ruth was a Moabite, remember, not an Israelite. From outside your family and your nation is bringing blessing and, uh, to quote Ruth 4, a sustaining of life to you. It's not something you produced with work or good intentions. It fell out of the sky as a gift from above. Like, no one gets to choose their in-laws, really. It just happens. Uh, And it's the same with salvation. It's the same with grace. Uh, Jesus came apart from us. Even though he became like one of us to die for us, and even though Scripture says he's closer than a brother, in another sense, Jesus is more like an in-law than a son. God's grace is given, not earned. It's a complete surprise so that we can't take any credit. Uh, it's grace, I would say, is as shocking as a daughter-in-law loving us more than our own kids. It's shocking. It doesn't, it doesn't calculate or make sense. But this is exactly why this is here in Ruth 4, to surprise us, to come out of left field, to show us that Jesus comes from the line of us doing nothing only receiving, only just getting what we get. And in this case, we get everything. We get God himself. We get God's sacrificial giving of his own self and becoming a part of our family uh, in in an in-law or kind of adoptive way. She's used a different biblical word, an adoptive way. It's not by bloodline or strength or our works or our obedience that we are saved or stay saved. It's in this in-law kind of grace accentuating, side door, surprise, out of the sky when we don't deserve it kind of way. And how has he loved us? Well, Ruth gives us a glimpse into that as well. The third point here is Ruth gave birth and suffered for Naomi. So it says, for your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth. Your daughter-in-law who loves you has given birth. All right, here's So here's the context. Childbirth is painful, or so I've heard. All right? Now, here's um, here's the theology. Ruth suffered for Naomi in love. So Naomi might be sustained in life and blessed. Now, here's the gospel out of that. We are saved by the suffering and work of another outside of us. See, Ruth here is not just an emblem of grace and being a daughter-in-law or a foreigner or a picture of outside of us blessing, though she is. She's also something more specific here. She's also a picture of Jesus himself and how he suffers in love for us on the cross. It is absolutely no coincidence whatsoever that her suffering came before Naomi's blessing. This is the mantra, the repeating song of all of Scripture. Suffering comes before our blessing, and it's not our suffering. It's someone else's. And so again, when you read these stories, you should ask, well, who does that sound like? Where else in the Bible have we read this? And our mind and our thoughts and our eyes and our page turning in the Bible should make a beeline to the cross. The pinnacle of all suffering, of all history, where the Son of God was crucified for sinners. Thieves, 
rebels, bitter ones. Remember Naomi's name earlier in the book? My name is Mara, she calls herself. It means bitter. We're bitter. We're familyless. We're hopeless. But someone suffered that we might have life. This is the gospel. Uh, my friend Laura Rhinus writes this. I don't see the death of Jesus often compared to labor pains, but how can it not be? The groans, gasps, and pants that escaped from his mouth while he hung on the cross were akin to a woman bearing down on the cusp of the deliverance of her child. He felt every tear, every bruise, every wound, fully and without any aid or assistance to dull it. He cries out, it is done, and through the gush of blood and water from his side and the last breath that was pushed from his lungs, the church was born. His dying cry gave way to our first cries of a born-again people, and through his death, he turns the tables. He calls us from our labors and instead labors for us sinners. Thus, we can read the beginning of Isaiah 43 anew. Fear not, for I have redeemed you through my death. I have called you by name as a parent does his child, for you are mine. Okay, again, lots more to say, but here's why we did all this today, uh, this last part especially. If the question is, what is Ruth 4 about exactly, and what is First and Second Samuel going to be about? What is the whole Bible ultimately about? Because it's really the, the same answer to all three of these questions. Um, these stories that precede First and Second Samuel, but also fill them, and also serve as the genealogical family album of Jesus Christ himself, are the, back, the backdrop, the background uh, to all good Christian doctrine. Uh, they, they shape, you could say, what his story would later become. And so um, what I like about Ruth 4, uh, like many things, but what I like about it is this is not... The point of Ruth 4 is not be like Ruth and have a baby and give that baby to your mother-in-law. Like, that's not the point. Uh, nor is it even be kind to your in-laws. Like, if you tried to read this story as though it's not about Christ or not a part of the greater redemptive story of the Bible, that's all you could really say. Who's doing something good in the story? And then you'd try to be like them. We call this a, a moralistic approach to Scripture, which is never really what the Bible does to itself. So as important as it is to be nice and kind to our in-laws, that's a good thing to do. That's not really what Ruth 4 is saying. Uh, see, to, to reference C.S. Lewis again, um, what we see in a story like this depends a lot on where we're standing and what kinds of questions and visual perspectives that we're bringing. And, and I, again, who we believe it to primarily be about. And the truth of the matter is this. You and I are Naomi in this story, benefiting from the work of an alien-to-us, in-law-like righteousness, a grace from beyond the horizon who drew near to bleed for our sins on a cross, to labor for us and to bring us back from the grave. This is key. Like Ruth didn't expect Naomi to labor for her in return, neither does Jesus expect us to labor for him. Only that we would receive the gift of his grace and live freely out of it with love.
That's it. That's the gospel. That's the freedom. That's the beauty. That's the life. That's the new birth. That's the gift. That's why it's called a gift. And why grace and gift semantically are actually so close in the Greek. Uh, It's the same idea. Grace is a gift. And if we seek to pay back the giver, it, it ceases to become that. And so this is God's posture towards us. Uh, you know, whenever the, the apostles in the New Testament talk in these terms, these are the stories that they're borrowing it from. Do you think Paul and John and James and, uh, and the author of Hebrews are pulling this out of thin air? It's these stories that they're getting it from, in part, at least in part. They're looking back and seeing how does Jesus, where does he come from? What stories shape his ministry and, and what he's like? And, and like here, part of that is Ruth's non-expectations over Naomi. There's no bait and switch to the gift. There's no, here's the baby, but now I need this from you. Let's make a deal. Shake on it. There's no handshake with God. There's no bartering with God. There's no meet in the middle with God. That's not the kind of covenant he brings into history. That was the old system that was always meant to fail and give way to one that would alone be by grace. And the New Testament is buried here in the old. It's like underneath the, it's a subterranean undercurrent. It's behind the shrubs a little bit. Uh, It's foggy, but it's being whispered and whispered and whispered intentionally so we can't miss it when it comes. Um, And that story is here. It's the story of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ who died and labored and bled that you and I might be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, so much, God, for your word. Um, Thanks for this chance just together as a church to talk a bit about it today conceptually, but um, especially just to hear your voice call out to us uh, through Ruth 4 and how you're going to continue to say a lot of those same things these next several months. Um, God, prepare us, not just in the head, but in the heart, to stand in the right spot, to approach Scripture as though it's not really about us. The, the point of the gospel is it's not about you, it's about Jesus. So may we apply that to our Bible reading as well. Uh, it's about him and what he's done ultimately. And Jesus, we thank you for the sacrifice, the labor uh, that, that you brought, your work that you brought into the world, uh, the gift, the blessing we get. Uh, it's crazy. Actually, it's actually pretty amazing, Ruth's kindness to Naomi. It's actually pretty shocking. And that's an imperfect human relationship that's, that's still wrought with some spots or imperfections or sins. How much better is yours? How much more like Ruth are you than Ruth? Uh, you're even more her. Uh, and so we, uh, we thank you, Jesus, for coming into the world uh, to fulfill these stories, to replace them in a sense, Uh, with yourself, uh, and to be the giver of all givers, the word that all other smaller words point to, um, and certainly uh, the King of Kings, the point to uh, these narratives we're about to embark uh, on a journey on. So uh, be with us, open our eyes and minds, uh, and just leave us here today encouraged. In Christ we pray. Amen.